If you will, join me in Galatians uh, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we continue in our series through the book of Galatians. This morning we will be looking at verses 10 through 14. Our title of our sermon this morning is Redeemed from the Curse of the Law. And our key words for our worshipers in training are law, curse, and judge. Now my favorite of all of Shakespeare's plays is his comedy, The Merchant of Venice. Perhaps you know this story. I'll give you a bit of background to help us understand where Shakespeare leads in this. In Venice, there was a young man named Bassanio. And he was seeking out a loan of 3,000 ducats so that he could travel to woo the heiress of Venice named Portia. And to get the necessary funds, Bassanio pleads with his friend Antonio, who is a merchant. Now, unfortunately for Bassanio and Antonio, all of Antonio's money is invested in merchant ships that are presently out to sea. However, to help Bassanio, Antonio arranges for a short-term loan from the money of a man named Shylock, who was a Jewish moneylender. He had deep-seated hatred for Antonio because of insulting treatment that Antonio had shown him in the past. Nevertheless, when pressed, Shylock takes, uh, takes on this uh, debt and makes a terrible bargain. The 3,000 ducats must be repaid in three months, or Shylock would take a pound of flesh from Antonio. Antonio agrees to this. He's confident that his ships will return on the appointed date and he could repay the debt. Now, at this point in the play, Shakespeare introduces Portia. Before he died, Portia's father included in his will that any man who sought to marry his daughter must choose from among three coffers that would sit before them, and one of them contained a portrait of Portia. If a man chose rightly, he could marry her. However, a wrong choice meant that he could never vow again to marry or court another woman. The princes of Morocco and Aragon both failed the test and they turned away. And so Bassanio, on this borrowed money, makes the trip. He chooses from among the coffers and he chooses correctly and happily agrees to marry Portia that very night. Meanwhile, back at home, things are not going so well for the merchant Antonio. Two of his ships were wrecked in transit. And his creditors now, including Shylock, are asking for repayment. Bassanio receives word about Antonio's problem, and he gets back to Venice as quickly as he possibly can, leaving his new wife, Portia, behind. However, Portia travels after him with her maid, and the two disguise themselves as men, Portia as a lawyer and her maid as a legal clerk. And when Bassanio arrives, the loan is in default, and Shylock is demanding a pound of flesh, and he wants it directly from Antonio's heart. Bassanio pleads with Shylock, offering him even three times the amount first borrowed, since he now has his wife's fortune. But Shylock's concern is only revenge. 
He wants his flesh. So Portia enters the scene under her disguise as a lawyer to defend Antonio. As she too points Shylock to a better way, the way of mercy, the way of forgiveness, away from the demands of the law, he persists in his desire to collect a pound of flesh because that's what the agreement was. He wants to follow the letter of the law. There will be no vacillating. There will only be what the agreement states. However, Portia finds a technicality. Sure enough, a pound of flesh was agreed upon and is the proper payment. However, there was no mention in the original agreement that the flesh could include any blood. And since Shylock wanted the letter of the law, Portia pointed out that to draw any blood was in violation of the agreement. In fact, to take a pound of flesh would end Antonio's life. So Shylock was not only in breach of the agreement if he drew blood, he also conspired to murder a Venetian citizen. So the case was decided against him, and because of what he had proposed to do, half of his wealth was to go to the city and the other half to Antonio while he was left with none. In the end, Antonio gives back his half of the penalty on the condition that Shylock bequeath bequeath it to his disheartened daughter. And so a broken and defeated Shylock accepts this agreement while everyone else goes on their merry way with much joy and happiness. Now I tell you all of this because what I believe is that William Shakespeare has written a beautiful illustration of what it means to live and deal with others on the basis of the law instead of living and interacting with others on the basis of grace. Shakespeare's character, Shylock, wasn't necessarily wrong in demanding that the law that was set down be fulfilled. The problem was he couldn't fulfill it without breaking another law. It was impossible, and it was all driven by the fact that he was unwilling to accept a greater payment in return. He was out for flush. And we learn from this, as we look to God's word, that those who live by the law die by the law. They never see it possible. They never see it able to deal with anyone on the basis of grace. The legal-heartedness of Shylock is the same legal-heartedness that naturally exists within you and me. Prior to a work of God within each of us, we're seeking to hold others to the law, most often to our law, to earn favor in accordance with the law, all the while being unable to maintain the standard for ourselves and falling far short of of what God actually requires of us. The more we try to keep the law, the more we find we are unable to actually fulfill it. In the end, we might get a pound of flesh, but now I have blood and death to deal with, which puts me outside of the law and what was said to be acceptable. So what now? As we've been looking at Paul's letter through 
through the letter to uh, the Galatians, we've revisited this theme of the relationship between the law of God and grace several times. Paul is confronting the false teaching of the Judaizers who continue to insist that the Galatians both trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation and submit to the constructs of the Jewish law if they are to be saved and if they are to continue in the faith. Paul has shown us already that the Judaizers were preaching a gospel completely other than the one that he and all the other apostles were preaching and had preached to the Galatians previously. Last week we looked at Paul's argument that the doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from works of the law isn't something new. It is the way that God has always worked from the very beginning. It wasn't after Abraham was circumcised that God counted him as righteous, but before. Why? Because he believed in the word of God who is Jesus Christ. So now Paul is shifting his argument a bit to address what living under the law truly is. If we're going to insist on a pound of flesh instead of understanding that God operates on the basis of grace because Christ is the fulfillment of the law, then we must face the harsh reality of the law. It's unrelenting. It is precise. It is unbending. It is immovable. It is rigid. And so Paul is presenting us with a question that we need to consider. Do I want to live on the basis of the law or on the basis of grace? And I hope you think about that this morning as we work through the text. If you're using the blue ESV Bible this morning, uh, our text is on page 973, and we will read verses 10 through 14 of Galatians chapter 3, and we will look at three points this morning. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Now the first thing Paul shows us in a passage this morning in verse 10 is that living by the law is a curse. And I think something we need to ask of this is how is it that Paul calls the law a curse? He and Jesus both have said that the law is good and holy and perfect and righteous. So how is he going to call it a curse? Well, Paul is actually referencing, as he will several times in this passage, the Old Testament. Here, specifically, he's quoting Deuteronomy 27 verse 26, when he writes, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
The background to this statement is Moses' address to the Israelites delivered on the threshold of their entrance into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 11. God gave Israel the law through Moses, and within it, he affirmed that if they were to uphold the requirements of the law, they would be blessed upon the land. But if they were to transgress the law, they would be cursed. The law was not given to them in this manner, that they would be seeking their justification by the law, but rather that they would live under the rule of God upon the land that he has given to them. So in a statement of great solemnity, he presents them with two options. Obey the law and be blessed, or disobey the law and be cursed. If the bless, in, in the blessing you receive if you obey the commandments. Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 11, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Now, once the Israelites get into the land, Moses has them dramatize the blessings and the curses. They participate in a uh, rather odd covenant ceremony on two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. In the valley between them is the land called Shechem, where Abraham first went after God promised him the land in Genesis 12. So six of the 12 tribes are asked to go on one mountain, and the other six go on to the other mountain. And the entire nation is to yell back and forth to one another on these mountains. And they're yelling out the curses of the law, which refer to a variety of transgressions from idolatry to sexual sin to bribery and murder. And in the end, the final curse is what Paul quotes in verse 10. Cursed are we if we do not do everything written in this law. So the law could bring blessing, the law could bring a curse while they lived upon the land, depending upon which, uh, whether or not they obeyed or they transgressed. But Paul makes a very clear argument in his letter to the Galatians. That the idea of keeping the law in its entirety is actually an illusion. Because of his sinful nature, man cannot obey the law. So while there's a sort of hypothetical possibility of blessing that is received through obedience to the law, the actual blessing does not arise. Why? Well, Paul and Moses answer this for us. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So you see, it's not sufficient to obey some of the law some of the time or all of the law some of the time. God, by his nature, requires perfection. We would have to obey all of the law all of the time, and that is beyond the capacity of human nature. The law may demand a pound of flesh, and while you might be able to extract a pound of flesh, you can't do it without drawing blood, and you can't do it without causing death. So in trying to keep the law, you actually end up breaking the law. Remember back in chapter 2 of Galatians, 
verse 16, Paul wrote, by works of the law, no one will be justified. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So what are we left with? The option of blessing is gone in our law keeping because we cannot and we will not uphold the righteous requirements of the law. Now, I want to remind you, we're talking about these things in the context of justification. As believers, as Christians, the law is utilized in a different way. But Paul is speaking in the context of one being saved, not walking in obedience as Christians, but one who's coming to God on the basis of the law that they would be justified. And in that way, there is only the curse of the law. The law condemns all men. You'll have to keep the whole thing. And as you try to keep the whole thing, the more you try, the more you'll fail, and the more you'll be made aware of your absolute inability. And the more ominous the curse of the law will be hanging over your head. So who is it that is under the curse? Paul tells us again at the beginning of verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. In other words, anyone who is seeking after his justification, anyone who is seeking to have a right standing before God based upon their keeping of the law, their good works, anyone who's expecting to obtain divine favor by their obedience will be cursed from the very law that they're seeking to uphold. And I hope we hear that loud and clear. All people who are seeking to be justified by works of the law, instead of being justified by Christ, will be cursed. And this clearly has its primary application with the Jews of Paul's day and and to those like the Judaizers who taught that Christian believers must also keep all of the requirements of the Mosaic law. These quite clearly can be described as being of the works of the law. (laughs) Now, some people might read this and think, well, he's dealing with those who are intentionally seeking to win God's favor by attempting to live up to the law's requirements, but I'm not doing that. Now, I also don't have faith in Christ, but I'm, I'm not trying to uphold the law, so this doesn't matter to me. I'm in the clear. Not so fast. We must remember that all men everywhere are morally responsible to the law of God. So the curse of the law was to come upon Israel if they disobeyed during their life upon the land, and specifically if they went after other gods. But this is the the basic sin common to all men, isn't it? Paul addresses it in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Although they knew God by natural revelation, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image. So you see, we cannot escape from the curse of the law by not seeking to live according to it, but also not having faith in Christ. It is not possible to distinguish between Jews and Gentiles in respect of their rebellion against God. 
That's the main focus of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 and 3. He, he writes this in Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. You see, since all men have the law written on their hearts, and since they reject God, as did rebellious Israel, it follows that all mankind lives under the curse of the law, not just the Jews. Now, admittedly, the Jews and the Judaizers made a conscious effort to obtain justification by their supposed law-keeping, so rejecting the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. But all unregenerate men and women and children are in the same boat. All are seeking to please God or merely appease their consciences by the things that they do. It's not only the Jew who seeks to establish their own righteousness. It's not only the Jew that have not submitted to the righteousness of God in Christ, but it is also the Gentile. You and me, apart from Christ, have sought to establish our own right standing before God on the basis of our own works by our own making. And friends, there are some of you here this morning who think yourself to be a good person, who think yourself to be worthy of the blessing of heaven when you depart from this earthly life because of what you've done because of how you've served or because of what you've accomplished or something that you look to and say is wonderful in your life. But the Bible is clear. For all who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you have one other option to obtain eternal life. Keep the law in its entirety from start to finish. But you see, your very nature is bound up in law-breaking. So it's only a hypothetical reality In other words, it cannot happen. You cannot uphold the law. It is an impossibility because your nature is bent towards sin from the moment you are conceived. Your only hope is to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. Your only hope is that you would admit that you are completely and totally unable to do anything of worth before God on your own and trust in the reality that all that Christ has done is enough. And with faith in Christ, you can be declared righteous, that you would have a right standing before God. On account of our descent from Adam, all human beings are sinners. And as sinners, we are by nature under the dominion of sin. We are its willing slaves, neither wanting nor able to escape its power. God will punish with eternal death those who continue to live day by day by day under the curse of the law. Free redemption is our only hope, and it is found only in Jesus Christ. Well, Paul goes on in our passage to once again affirm the very thing he's been emphasizing all along with the Galatians. And this is our second observation this morning in verses 11 and 12, that only those who are counted righteous in Christ by faith will be justified. Now, Paul has set up the fact that the law itself for the one who seeks justification is under the curse of the law which means there are consequences. 
And the consequences that Paul points us to here in verse 11 is that no one is justified before God by the law. No attempt at fulfilling the law of God as a means of pleasing God will suffice. Try and try and try that we might to live righteously by obeying the law. We have to face reality. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So when we understand the law in this way, we can begin to see how ludicrous it is that we would ever assume it possible to uphold the law. The law simply makes sin more obvious to us when we measure what we do and what we think and who we are against the requirements that God has given. Paul tells us in Romans 3, by the law is the knowledge of sin. We know what sin is because of the law. But the remedy for that sin is not more law. It is faith in Christ. In fact, what the law does is not only expose our sin, but it excites us and it deepens our our guilt before God, proving to us all the more our need for Christ. And and we could rest there on on Paul's case on the logic of the matter alone, but he continues, and, and he does so by quoting again from the Old Testament. He moves out of the Torah into the prophets this time and quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, which says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I want to be clear about something. Even the Jews recognized that faith was necessary, that one would have life with God. They perverted the idea without a doubt. They combined law with faith. They, they have a hope for a Messiah that is yet to come and in their minds has not yet come. But the idea of faith was firmly rooted in their theology because it came directly to them from their scriptures. So Habakkuk's point is not one that is, is made like the Judaizers, claiming that they're saved by a combination of faith and works, but by faith alone, which is an interesting thing because of where they've taken it. But there's a comparison here between what Habakkuk is saying and what we looked at last week with Abraham in Genesis 15:6. Both verses speak of righteousness. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. And here we see the righteous shall live by faith. Belief and faith The same root word. So Abraham's believing God and Habakkuk's living by faith are the same thing. A lot of scholars believe maybe Habakkuk had Genesis 15 in mind when he was writing. But there's also a psalmist who writes, I have taken the way of faith. Or the Proverbs say, the one who speaks in steadfast faith will make known righteousness. Or a man of faith will abound with blessings. There's a promise here that's consistent throughout all of Scripture. The promise of what faith brings. The result of faith is life with God. The righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness gives us life in Jesus Christ. But it only comes by faith and never comes by works of the law. So, says Paul, Those who are justified in the sight of God, those who are the just, live before God by virtue of 
their faith. Now this tells us that faith is the basis of our acceptance before God and our escape from divine judgment. There is no other way. So where does this leave those who seek justification through the law? Paul says in verse 12, the law is not of faith. And so it leaves them in death. Now, Paul makes a really important claim at the end of verse 12. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here again, Paul is looking back to the Old Testament scriptures. Now he's referencing what we looked at in our call to worship this morning, Leviticus 18 and verse 15. Excuse me, verse 5. His point is to demonstrate once again that faith and obedience to the law are mutually exclusive in terms of justification. How so? Well, faith in Christ for our justification and law-keeping for our justification are two entirely different principles. They're based on different formulas altogether. If a person were able to keep the commandments of the law perfectly and consistently, they would have spiritual life and acceptance by God as a result. His acceptance would come through works. And this is what Paul argues in Romans 4. 4. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if you have the law and all its requirements before you, and you do all that it commands of you, the reward is simply owed to you. It's a non-negotiable. If you keep the law perfectly in its entirety, God owes you your justification. It's the only right thing. But Paul continues in Romans 4, 5, and he says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's not owed in this way. It's given. It's a gift. It is counted. It is credited. And not to those who present themselves as godly, but Paul says to the ungodly. And that crediting of righteousness gives us life. So I hope you see two distinct options. Either earn God's favor by your works, which is entirely hypothetical, Because before you even know God's law, you are breaking it. Because you were conceived in sin and your entire nature prior to knowing and trusting and loving and having faith in Christ is bent toward that sin. But there's another way. Recognize your ungodliness and look by faith to Christ who died, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now, if you want to attempt to find justification on your works, at the very least, you're going to have to prove that you're godly in some way. But the way that the Word of God points us to is actually realistic and will actually save us because it's owning up to what is true. Acknowledge before God that you are who you are. Not a perfect law-keeping good person who has it all together and should be accepted upon the merits of your own goodness, but actually admitting that we're broken and messed up and in need of a bit of grace. 
a whole bit of grace, all of grace that we might live and only in Christ. And it is only God who provides it. If our salvation is to come by grace through faith, and that's really our only option, we have to be honest and we have to admit our condition. And here's the thing. I've said this several times in the past. For some reason, as Christians, once we become Christians, we have a tendency to want to get away from this reality sometimes. For whatever reason, after we become Christians, we're fearful of admitting who we really are. We want to pretend that after Jesus saves us, we are all of a sudden uh, seeing everything about our lives all cleaned up and proper and in order. But even if you sort of portray that in your life externally, you know it's a lie. You know it's a lie to pretend like things are in their right place and, and you're, you're living your life as a godly, holy Christian who basically floats around because the weight of sin has been so far removed from you in your life. Brothers and sisters, when, when some of you come to me and admit to me that there's some kind of sin going on in your life, Sometimes you think I'm going to be surprised by that. But you know why I'm not surprised by that? Because I am a man with a heart and with flesh, just like yours. And I know who I am, and I know what I say, and I know what I think, and I know what I do each and every day. And when I look at it all in relationship to what the Scriptures say, I know that it is only by God's grace that I have anything worthy of honor in my life because left to myself, I am a wretched man filled with sin and filled with selfish desires. Praise God that we are Christians. Praise God that we have a desire to be free from sin and to walk in the newness of life. But let's be honest. We're all works in progress. Not one of us has arrived or we wouldn't be sitting here right now. So let's not pretend that we're something else. Your church family should be a safe place to be honest about sin, to be held accountable, and simultaneously knowing that you're free to admit your brokenness and your failures to one another because we all have that in common. Because not one of us came, became a Christian apart from acknowledging our true nature. We're relying not on our works, but solely upon the works of Christ on our behalf, by grace, through faith. We need to continue relying solely on the works of Christ on our behalf, by grace, through faith. That's the only hope we have because no man can obtain acceptance before God by works of the law. So let's be clear on what Paul has said. In principle, the law of Moses can bring a blessing or a curse. Perfect obedience secures God's blessing, but anything less results in a curse. However, because human nature is sinful, because we cannot do this in our nature, only the curse remains. The curse rests not only on the Jews, but also on all men, because all men have the law written upon their hearts. We have enough 
knowledge of God to be condemned forever. Only faith in Christ, only the works of Christ will suffice that we would be counted as righteous. And so Paul goes on to provide us hope in our third and final point this morning in verses 13 and 14. He shows us that the curse of the law is reversed in Christ who grants the believer all the blessings of Abraham. Verse 13 is without question one of the most remarkable statements in the New Testament on the death of Christ. The cross was a scene of redemption, an idea with which Paul's first century readers were were much more familiar than we are today, to redeem someone. For example, a slave. If a slave was to be redeemed, they were to have their freedom secured for them at the payment of a price by someone else. And it was in order to redeem us. It was in order to secure our freedom from the curse of the law that Jesus died by hanging on a tree at Calvary. And what a significant price he paid. He, re- he redeemed us by the, from the curse of the law by not only diverting the wrath of God and taking it upon himself, but actually becoming a curse for us. The penalty of our law-breaking was transferred to him. We are the wrath-deserving people, but he became the wrath-bearer. He became an accursed one, bearing the curse that should have been ours. And Paul confirms that this has always been the will of God. This has always been the way of salvation. And he does this by yet again quoting the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When a criminal under Old Testament law was put to death by being hanged on a tree, it pointed to the fact that he or she was under the curse of God. The nailing of Jesus to the cross symbolized the very same thing. And frequently in the New Testament, the cross of Calvary is thought of and spoken of as a tree because of this very thing. He became a curse for us. And this is because the Christ who died, died to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I want you to notice how Paul writes what he does in verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us. Notice he's using the language of an accomplished fact. Christ actually redeemed us at Calvary if we are his children. There and then, by his substitutionary death, Jesus Christ paid the necessary price for our deliverance from the curse of the law. And his being made a curse that we may be redeemed resulted in significant blessings that were promised to Abraham and his posterity that we discussed last week. As believers in Christ, we are sons and daughters of Abraham, thus making us heirs of all that he was promised. We receive the fruit of all that flows from God to those in whom Christ is the object of faith and trust. We are justified. We have eternal life. But Paul includes something at the end of verse 14 that he hasn't yet mentioned, and that is the promised spirit. Look at 
He says he redeems us so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Through the redeeming work of Christ, the transforming presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, graciously promised beforehand, is given to every single believer in Christ. That's simply to say, when we become believers in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit of God. The unregenerate man is incapable of faith. It has to be given to him as a gift from God, imparted by grace. And that work of man receiving faith as a, as a gift from God is the work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes and, and regenerates our heart and brings a person to repentance, no one can exercise faith without the Holy Spirit of God first regenerating their heart and granting them new life in Christ. But Paul says we must receive the Holy Spirit that was promised through faith. What does that mean? The Spirit does the work of regeneration. The Spirit grants us faith. But what Paul is alluding to here is our consciously acknowledging him, being in our hearts, and living in our lives in a permanent residence according to the promise of Christ. The Spirit is already indwelling us at that point or else we would never have gotten to the place where we wanted him there. However, there is a point where we have a conscious knowledge of his existence and we give thanks to God and we walk in the newness of life according to the works of the Holy Spirit who has been promised to us. And then we no longer are seeking to look to the law as something as though we could fulfill it for our justification, but we look to the law with love in our hearts for all that God has commanded that we would walk in thankful obedience to him. And Paul's going to deal with this in greater detail in chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, Christ's meritorious work all the way up to the cursed tree is our only grounds of justification. Through faith, God imputes to us the work of Christ who loved the Father so much that he did everything he was required to do that we might live as children of God instead of die as children of Adam. But God in his great mercy and his love for his children not only gave us our justification by faith in Christ, but he has given us the righteousness of Christ that we might live in holiness and godliness, that we might love the word and the truth and the law of God, that we can live in obedience to God, willingly, joyfully, gladly, knowing all along we will continue to sin. But we have a faithful God and a great high priest who pleads before the Father on our behalf that we be forgiven. And as we stand before God on the day of judgment, he can declare not guilty. Faith saves, and faith is absolutely mandatory, but faith is a gift from God. And our faith is in Jesus Christ as the object, and our faith has the gospel as its content. Only the gospel saves. The law has no power to justify you. 
God can credit faith to you because Christ has died in your place, becoming a curse so that the blessing may be exchanged for the curse for those who trust in Christ alone. It is the teaching of all of Scripture because it's the way God has always done things. Come to Jesus Christ. That is the word of God. Taste and see that he is good. Amen. Let's pray together. So grateful for your word. We're grateful, God, that we have Christ as the object of our faith and that we have the gospel as the content of our faith. That our joy, our hope, our satisfaction can be wrapped up in a great work that has been done on our behalf. We delight in Christ having become a curse on our behalf that we might receive the righteousness of God. We delight in knowing that we need not earn or obtain our justification by works because we know in our trying to be justified by works that it is an impossible task. We thank you for the reminder by your law that drives us to see our need for Christ. And we thank you for Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within us that we can now look to your law and desire to live in thankful obedience to it. Not that we would earn anything before you, but that we would live righteously, that we might have sweet, joyful, abiding communion with you forever and ever. I pray, Lord, that you would bless your word in the hearts of your people, that you would awaken deadened ears and eyes and hearts and give them new life in Christ. And we trust that you can do all of this and you alone have the power to make it so. And we ask this in the holy, powerful, and precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.